Are you a high school senior planning on attending college in the fall or a current college student with at least another year ahead? Team C Possibilities is inviting young people with vision loss to become a TSP scholar. In addition to winning $5,000, you will be paired with a mentor. The application period is opened until April 30th, 2020. For more information, check the liner notes. Please listen carefully. Hi, I'm Randy Cohen. I teach finance and entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School, and I sit on the board of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I have retinitis pigmentosa, a degenerative condition of the retina. Here on the Dangerous Vision Podcast, we get a chance to talk to people who have something interesting to say about visual impairments and blindness. Said, hey, I know this guy who does uh, video games for the blind. Uh, and I thought, well, that sounds great because I loved video games when I could see and I, it was painful to give them up. Um, so 26 speakers, nine subwoofers, um, above you, below you, all around you. I'm sitting on top of this acoustically invisible grate. There's like seven speakers below me. Um, and so in that sense, I can represent uh, a sound anywhere in space. Randy's guest is Byron Walker. He is a game developer specializing in video games for the blind gamer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want the real dirty truth, it's already, it's already happened. Really? All right. No, I, uh, we won't no, tell no, anybody. No, no. We'll, we'll, we'll cut off this part of the podcast so the rest of the world doesn't know. But just between you and me. So uh, today we're here with uh, with uh, Byron Walker, and um, I'm really uh, excited about this. There's, there we have lots to talk about. This this came about because uh, one of my students said, "Hey, I know this guy who does uh, video games for the blind," uh, and I thought, "Well, that sounds great," because I loved video games when I could see, and I it was painful to give them up. And then I emailed with you, and you pointed out that maybe they should be referred to as audio games uh, <laughs> rather than video games for the blind. And uh, and so we we just got uh, started talking, but I'll just share with our our audience that um we were doing the mic check and uh and we were sort of joking around and, and dave was like oh count to 10 uh the producer and, and and i was like oh say the alphabet backwards and you know when i was um when I was 12 years old, I participated in an event at my summer camp called Message to Garcia, where they, they broke the camp up into teams, and then you kind of would have to accomplish a task at each station, and the goal was okay. to uh, accomplish all the tasks. So maybe somebody would have to, say, throw a football through, through a tire. And so, you know, you'd pick the guy on the team who, you know, had a great arm, and if it took him five tries, that was slowing the team down. And so one of the things was to say the alphabet backwards. Uh, and so I sort of jokingly asked you to say the alphabet backwards, and, and and so um, uh, what's so weird about this is it's now, you know, sort of 40 years later, and I can still say ZYXWVUTSRQPONMLKGIHGFEDCBA because I spent wow. maybe half an hour practicing because I wanted to really come through for my team, right? And so here I am, I'm a 12-year-old kid, and I'm told, okay, in 30 minutes, they're going to come running up having completed the swimming four laps in the, in the lake and having, you know, done the football toss and all these other things. And then it's going to be Randy's time to shine, but saying the alphabet backwards as quickly as possible. So I practice and practice and practice so I could shave a few seconds. And uh, yeah, now now half a century later, I can I can still like reel it off and nothing. And I, I just think it's so interesting um, kind of the way, A, how, how something that seems hard turns out like, no, it only took half an hour to master that. Uh, and mm-hmm. B, how it sticks with you uh, for mm-hmm. decades. So uh, you know, that's my conversation opener for you. <laughs> that's actually a decent enough segue to... Um, a lot of the things I've been preparing for today, um, just when it comes to audio games and things, thinking about how um, 
how influential those early moments are. If you think about like early language development or anything like that, it's just, it, it's common knowledge at this point that it's so much easier to pick up on a new language when you're five years old versus when you're 50 or 60 or 70. Um, that's not to say that it's impossible um, later in life, but just that it gets so, to be So let me ask a question. People all say that, and it's obvious, it's absolutely true. There's no doubt it's true. And mm-hmm. I think people say that the causality has to do with like brain plasticity and things like that, and I'm totally open right. to that. But isn't it possible that it's just because they've got nothing else to do when they're five? <laughs> like, I got like 600 <laughs> things to do this week. And if you say to me, yeah. oh, Randy, while you're at it, in between those 600 things, could you do me a favor and learn to speak Russian, right? I'll be like, sure, I'll, uh, I'll get as much of that done as I can, right? And, and maybe it's going to take me a long, long time to get that fluency. Mm-hmm. Whereas the five-year-old, all he's got to do all day is think, man, how am I going to ask for dinner in Russian? Because that's the only language that they speak in this house. So I don't know. Do we know for sure that it has to do with brain rather than just uh, yeah. just one's ability to focus? Um, I, I would think so. Yeah, I, I'm sure yeah. it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Sure. If you quit your job, <laughs> retired, moved to Russia, I'm sure right. you'd pick up on Russian much faster than if you were just doing a little yeah. bit of Duolingo on the train or what have you. That's um, my instinct. <laughs> one of the one of the studies I, I thought was really funny is they put these prism glasses on owls, right? So it, it would sort of like tilt their vision by 15, 30, 45 degrees. Um, on, on, on owls, the wise, on the owls. wise birds with the big eyes. Yep. Okay, got it. Yep, yep. <laughs> and, and the idea was that they would see young and old, how long it would take for them to sort of adapt to these glasses in their ability to catch prey, right? So you would see these little videos of these owls, these poor things, diving yeah. for mice and completely missing um, just because yeah. of these prison glasses, but then eventually they would adapt. And what they gave us is uh, kind of an interesting graph of how neuroplasticity changes over a life cycle, at huh. least with owls. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Humans is a, a little cruel. So. You know, normally I start off asking people about their eyesight, but you're guessing not blind, right? Uh, yeah, no, no. <laughs> most, most of the people on the podcast, um, you know, have serious vision impairment, but mm-hmm. not everybody. We just did a pod with, uh, with, uh, Wick Grossbeck who owns the Boston Celtics, who, uh, um, has blindness in his family, but he himself is not. And, uh, so, you know, we're mm-hmm. happy to talk to anybody with things, uh, to say that are, that are interesting and that relate to, you know, people with, with vision impairments. And I think, truthfully, I just want to, you know, interview anybody who's interesting, but you know, I, I, I'm supposed to keep with the theme, um, just so the audience isn't like, why the heck's, why the heck's he talking to this person so um <laughs> we'll get to it don't worry <laughs> yeah exactly eventually well why don't we take a minute and talk about uh talk about audio games so how how did you end up thinking about audio games and then tell us what mm-hmm. an audio game's like and i don't know fill us in sure so here at stanford i spent most of my time studying at this place called karma that's ccrma the center for computer research and music and acoustics mm-hmm. most famous for the invention of fm synthesis the uh, sort of background for the backing for all electronic music. Here is a clip from YouTube. Byron gives a tour of Stanford's listening room. Here we are in Karma. That's the Center for Computer Research and Music and Acoustics, CCRMA. And um, we're actually in the listening room. Uh, As I like to explain it to people, Stanford to me is a lot like Disneyland, you know, and so you can see how I really enjoy going to college here. And if there was a best ride at Disneyland, you know, like the Space Mountain, it would be this place, this room right here, where we're sitting right now. It's This is the listening room, and it's, uh, in short, a 360-degree surround sound room. As far as, like, creative things that you can do in here, I did a project just last quarter, and it was in 
I guess a video game would be a bit of a misnomer, but it's, it's an audio game. And I called it See No Evil. The basic premise was you're standing in the center of this room and it's pitch black. Each of these eight speakers, high level. Shells will actually clink on the ground below you and uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I came across this class called Neuroplasticity in Music and Gaming, okay. um, which is taught by a lead scientist, Poppy Crumb of Dolby Laboratories. Um, it is very, very, I think, influential course. It's one of those like classes where I took it on a, almost a whim and uh, ended up being one of my favorites and, and certainly one of the most influential. But um, we spent a lot of time looking at some of these studies around um, examining the training benefits of like video games whether it be visual or memory focused or attention even um, there's a lot of really interesting research out there that tries to pick apart um, the extent to which video games kind of can train your brain um, the most interesting ones are for example like in the visual area where there's tons around sort of um, contrast sensitivity your ability to sort of make out you know, the, the sort of finer details in darkness or even like useful field of view, um, things like that. And um, and then in this class, they, she sort of brought up this Daniel Kish. And um, in the TED Talk, he talks about one of, the, one of the big things that led him to sort of lead this life is that his parents treated him as a child with blindness, not a blind child. And in that, mm-hmm. in that sense, tried to help him live uh, sort of a full life regardless yeah. of, the, of how he was born. And um, I think to me that it really connected because I was looking at a lot of games for accessibility at the time. Like Microsoft had just come out with this new controller. I just, uh, I follow a lot of pro gaming and there's this pro gamer called Brawley who has uh, some like physical impairments and ends up using the controller with nothing but like his facial muscles, like his tongue and his cheek and things like that. Yeah. And uh, is one of the highest performing three fighter players in the world. Um, and so I, I think it was having come across some of these like early audio games, which was like, oh, Tetris, but like, you know, the sound kind of pans back and forth so you can hear it moving left and right or things like that. I realized it was, these were all games that were visual games that were trying to sort of um, cater more towards the blind versus being games that could be played just as well by a blind person. That's mm-hmm. the sort of like audio game inspiration. Yeah. Um, so I built these. I'm actually sitting here right now in this space at Karma called the Listening Room. Uh, it has 26.9 speakers. Um, uh-huh. So it's 26 speakers, nine subwoofers um, above you, below you, all around you. I'm sitting on top of this acoustically invisible grate. There's like seven speakers below me. Um, and so in that sense, I can represent uh, a sound anywhere in space um, in this like sort of densely packed speaker environment. And it's here where I made these audio games. The first of which was one um, I lovingly titled See No Evil, uh, which was a... <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> nice. uh, it's a zombie shooter. So the idea is, you know, you're sort of in the zombie apocalypse um, and have nothing but your ears and, you know, your gun to protect you. And, and so you have to, like, you're standing in the center of this room. Um, it's pitch black. You have to listen for where they're coming from and... Um, you know, get them before they get you. Uh, it was a little violent, I think. <laughs> uh-huh. Some of the, the academic folks. Um, no, I love it. I remember one of my professors tried it out and um, was so 
uh, I, I guess uh, enthralled by it, she like screamed and like cowered on the floor, kind of um, as the zombies <laughs> came to eat her alive. Um, the next game uh, is uh, Star Wars inspired. It's uh, kind of this like laser defense. Don't say that you're going to get sued. It was inspired oh, uh, by a galaxy far away, but not far, far right. away. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, the uh, Field X professor is uh, the Star X guy. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, it's kind of, I mean, I watched a lot of Star Wars growing up, and that, that scene on the Millennium uh, Falcon, Luke Skywalker is kind of like, you know, having, having the training helmet on has to like deflect all these lasers. And uh, for what it's worth, I made my own proprietary laser sounds and uh-huh. um, everything sort of home brewed in that sense. Yeah. Um, but the idea is you're standing in the center and you're just sort of, it's almost a rhythm game where these lasers are being shot at you and using only your sense of sort of spatial awareness in your ears. You have to listen for them and deflect them uh, well, as they're coming at you. I mean, I mean, maybe you know, maybe most people are only using their sense of spatial awareness in their ears, but a few among us are using the force as well. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's, uh, that's what differentiates the. Uh, most that is a clever choice, though, right? Because Luke, obviously, he had to close. He had to, you know, close his eyes or t- take off his his visor in order to in order to really um, uh, mm-hmm. be be at his maximum effectiveness. So, yes, that's a, that's an inspiring um, that's an inspiring concept for for blind people. But like maybe under certain circumstances, actually not being able to see could be an advantage, or at least you know not not a disadvantage. So uh, that's uh, that's super cool. Yeah. And uh, nope. so that was the idea was, was to try to make something where um, a game where somebody who is blind, certainly born blind and used to using their ears like this their whole lives uh, would have a natural advantage. Right. Mm-hmm. It just, I never have had someone blind like, actually try it. But um, I think the idea was also that perhaps in the same way that a lot of these first person shooters confer some sort of visual training, maybe something mm-hmm. like this would be able to confer some kind of auditory training. Yeah. I think that's I think that's mm-hmm. very plausible. Now, uh, now are these games available? Can can somebody get this in the app store or anything like that? Uh, <laughs> currently, they live here in the listening room with uh, the twenty six speakers. Yeah. And, do you uh, need twenty six? Maybe I should ask that question first. Is okay? Is this would this work through a headset, or do you really kind of need to be in a place with twenty six speakers to make it to make uh, to make it work? Um, technically, no. I think there's a there's a lot of it's kind of a good, better, best kind of situation where having mm-hmm. these speakers in space um, is just the most real that it could possibly get. Yeah. Um, whereas, like, say, for example, if you had an Oculus Rift on or any of these VR devices that was, like, tracking your head movement and its rotation, then, I mean, like if they already do, you could sort of virtually render these sounds in space um, mm-hmm. and kind of make that a thing. Yeah. But uh, that comes with the sacrifices, and it's a very, very much a growing field. If you look at um, even Dolby, like they're trying to put Dolby Atmos um, into video games. I think the most notable was early on they they got it into Overwatch, and now it's it's becoming more and more of a regular thing um, with like bigger AAA titles that can kind of afford to do that kind of thing. But um, in that sense, I, I think there's a there's a big difference between the sort of virtual panning that you see and um, the real world stuff where having grown up play a lot of playing a lot of video games i got used to basically the most low res low tech version of sound spatialization in games mm-hmm. right. um, 
And when I turn on something like Dolby Atmos, which seeks to kind of render something a little more realistic, uh, it ends up actually making it harder to play because it, <laughs> it turns out I'm not as good with that. Cool. And uh, the sort of low-res stuff i I just gotten so used to. Right. Um, and that helps me more strategically know, like, oh, there's a person like 14 to degrees, 14 degrees to my right or something. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, I, I guess it's kind of the long answer, short version is, uh, yeah, yeah, you could definitely do it. Yeah. So the so let's talk about music and games. I mean, uh, when mm-hmm. I was a kid, there was a very popular game. It's still out there. In fact, I saw a little pocket version of it uh, not long ago in a store uh, called Simon, um, where basically it would uh, play patterns of notes, but it would be, uh, do you know the game I'm talking about? Can you picture mm-hmm, this thing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's got, you know, four colored buttons, and then they would light up and be like, dink, 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 and then, you know, that would be like red, green, you know, blue or whatever, and then, you know, you would try to uh, type it back in, you know, so it was a memory game and so forth, and right. although, obviously, the colors and lights um, aid memory and make the game more fun and interesting for the sighted, uh, it seems like, you know, that's, I mean, that would be a trivial example of a sound-only music-based uh, audio game that you could create. And, uh, you know, uh, but my guess is that for somebody who's got musical skill like you do and also uh, game creation skill, there must be, you, you, you must be tempted to, to think of really cool stuff you could do with music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the, the games, I guess, uh, before the sort of strict audio games was a VR game, uh, I worked on with some friends of mine called Piano Teacher from Hell. Okay. I was trying to replicate the, uh, <laughs> the that early childhood experience that a lot of us have of a, an extremely strict, frightening, horrifying piano teacher, even um, where you're sort of sitting on this cold mountain in this virtual space. I even for the presentations, I would even bring like a fan. So it was kind of like windy and whatever. Um, and you're you have your hand on a keyboard, and you're just you simply have to sort of memorize strings of notes and play them and read them. Um, the idea being that maybe this would help you to stretch like your, your ability to chunk together uh, mm-hmm. different amounts of notes. Um, mm-hmm. Except your peanut, peanut, uh, piano teacher, excuse me, uh, Slenderman is to your left. Mm-hmm. And uh, for every note you miss, for every mistake you make, and for every second you're not looking at your teacher, um, he sort of like creeps closer and closer uh, until I he see. finally gets you. I see. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there was something like that uh, yeah. as Simon says for piano coming up on Dangerous Vision Anomaly I don't, I don't really know what else to call it which is that there has never been a case of an early blind person developing schizophrenia but first Life as a Blind Person by Executive Director of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired Sassy Outwater-Wright and today I want to talk about food Specifically today, I want to talk about labeling and organizing a kitchen. A box, a jar, a can, a bottle, and a package. I'll walk into a grocery store and the one thing they have in common, they're all print. They're all inaccessible to us. Unless you have really good vision, you can't read parts of that food labeling process. And I have no vision, so all of them Yeah, no dice. I can't read any of that, Um, at least not by hand or by sight. So what do I do? How do I organize my kitchen? Now, this this all comes from years and years of practice and training as a blind person. If you are new to this whole thing and you haven't organized a kitchen before as somebody who has low vision or is totally blind or anywhere along that spectrum, 
Welcome to the club. It's not as bad as it may seem. Not only do you have to worry about, you know, making sure your appliances are accessible to you. Now you have to worry about if your cereal box is accessible to you. Let's figure out how we do that. So there's always the good old method of stick your hand into the box and find out what's in there. But if you don't want to open the box, yes, there are things that you can do. If you're technologically minded, there's a great app called Seeing AI. I've talked about that before. It's made by Microsoft and it has a barcode reader in the app. And if you hold that barcode reader out over the product, it will help you find and locate the barcode. And then it will snap a picture of that barcode for you automatically. The QR code will pop up and it will read to you what the product is. Once you know what the product is, you can go look up more information. If you need to know, for example, the ingredients of a particular brand of food or you want to know how to prepare it and there's a recipe on the box, this will give you that information or help you find out what the product is called so you can go online and look that up. Um, braille labels, you can find all different kinds of braille labels online at various stores like Adaptation Store or MaxiAids or Independent Living Guide. There are tons of ways to braille label things. It's tough because you have to print out the labels yourself or write them out in braille yourself, but they are out there. But most importantly, don't have people just put things away randomly where they can find them. If you have an organizational system for your pantry or your fridge, ask that the guests with sight in your house abide by your rules of organization so that you don't accidentally put the orange juice on your Cheerios. Yes, I have done that. My last piece of advice, don't try to read a Braille label when it's in the freezer on a glass jar. Your fingers will freeze. Yes, that's also by experience. For Life as a Blind Person, I'm Sassy Outwater-Wright, the director of MABV. It's funny you mention um, memory and specifically something like Simon, um, because in my last sort of like year of school, what I really caught on to was um, this kind of like odd medical um, anomaly. I don't, I don't really know what else to call it, which is that there has never been a case of an early blind person developing schizophrenia. Huh. Um, yeah. I did not know that. I know. Uh, that's what I thought too. When I saw it, I thought, no way, like, you know, kind of what's going on here. And it turns out that the fact is very much true. Um, but there's never been like a congenital or early blind person who's developed schizophrenia. Um, and one of the reasons is, is the thought that actually um, schizophrenics often have um, all these like perceptual and cognitive deficiencies, auditory mm -hmm. and um, memory being sort of the two notable ones. And mm -hmm. that earlier, earlier congenital blindness um, helps to strengthen those areas, as you might imagine, right? Like you're having yeah. to sort of, um, right process everything so sequentially that you're not only like picking up on better, um, like sort of working those auditory muscles in your brain, but you're also for having to sort of sequence everything. Um, you're really strengthening up your short-term memory. I read an incredible article. I would like to read further verification of this claim because it's so stunning. Uh, like it makes sense. And yet at the same time, it's kind of stunning. So I would just like to, you know, mm -hmm. before I repeat it to the podcast universe, I'll just give the heads up that I, I've only seen this in one place, not repeat, which what it claimed is that when um, schizophrenics hear voices, um, those voices are not just inside their head. They actually are hearing it. 
be, and it's their own voice. They're sub-vocalizing, right? So the words that they think are being said to them, uh, you know, that, that, that are appearing in their head, they're actually the ones saying it and that, that you can actually measure the sub-vocalization. And obviously it's not like anybody could have tested every schizophrenic in the world, but the claim is mm-hmm. that this is, this is a norm. And uh, that kind of blew my mind. The idea that, you know, no, that, in other words, of course, there's a part of their brain that's causing them to say these words and then hear them and then think that they're coming from outside. So that's a, obviously a brain issue to, to be, you know, making that error of, of thinking it's coming from outside when you're saying it yourself. Um, and yet at the same time, obviously, you could say, well, there's the outside force that's causing them to subvocalize it and then they're hearing it. And so they're not necessarily wrong in that in that sense they just right. aren't recognize they just don't realize the fact that they're kind of playing this this um intermediary role do you know this book called um uh uh, uh sorry the the origins of consciousness in the breakdown of the bicameral mind one of the all-time great titles but uh it's by uh, mm-hmm. uh it's by a guy, a Princeton professor. Um, mm-hmm. uh, his name, uh, I think, is Julian Jaynes, and uh, he wrote this book on the origins of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind. So it's a good, good book to have on your bookshelf, just to have people look and say, hey, "Wow, look how smart he is with that title, <laughs> right?" But if you if you uh, if you go and kind of parse that title, uh, what what he argues <coughs> is that um, is that essentially we used to have you know if you think of like the whole left brain right brain thing that uh if you go back prior to about 5000 years ago um that uh, we really those two brains were not uh conjoined shall we say that they were acting as two different things and so the way it felt to be a human being more than 5000 years ago was that one side of your brain was this godlike voice uh instructing the side of your brain that does stuff so in other words, that you actually kind of heard a voice in your head saying to you, um, you know, you're hungry, go get a drink of water, and then your body and then the, the other side of your head kind of carried that out, okay? Mm-hmm. And that um, – and so that, that – um, if you think about this concept of consciousness, right? You know, what does it mean to be conscious? You know, it, it, uh, most people think that that like um, a bird is not, you know, that a, that a you know a blue jay is not conscious in the way. In other words, it doesn't think about the past and the future. It doesn't think to itself, "Hmm, I wonder what's going to happen tomorrow." It just reacts right. in the moment, right? And even dogs, I think most people think probably do not have that kind of consciousness where they they kind of think about themselves and others and and uh, and and make plans and all that sort of thing. Uh, although you can see once you get to a dog, you're definitely at minimum into a gray area. Um, anyway, the notion is, you know, obviously from the title on the origins of consciousness is that we didn't really have consciousness until the two ki- sides of the brain kind of fused. And uh, the the cl- his claim, James's claim is that if you go back to the very earliest writing that survives, um, people talked as if uh, they were getting instructions from outside, essentially, and and um, and that that uh, basically you saw this sort of explosion of uh, technology and economy and everything else as uh, a group of people had this change in their brains, and um, and as that group basically took over the world because it's hugely advantageous to have our brains fused in the way that they are now. Now, 
it's entirely possible that you and our listeners are thinking, well, this is the craziest, stupidest thing I've ever heard. But what I will say is it has it was it was quite the rage in the sort of 70s and 80s, and it has not ever been disproven. And very smart people like Richard Dawkins say things like, it's probably wrong, but if it's right, he's the greatest genius. James is the greatest genius in the history of mankind. As I say, he was a Princeton professor. He wasn't some clown. Um, it's a it's a serious idea. And in fact, some people say if you go read just like you know the Wikipedia entry on this, you know you'll see that like some evidence that has come in on from genetic studies and other things since like seems to kind of fit the hypothesis. But you know certainly it's a long way from proven. So um, I don't know. Who knows? Crazy world out there. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's a yeah. crazy world up there, right? Like between the yeah. ears. It's uh, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, Real black box. Yeah, right. We really don't know what's happening. And, and uh, well, so let me ask you, since you're a uh, technology guy and we're talking about the brain and the black box, uh, mm-hmm. any any thoughts you want to share on the, the – OK, I'm going to step back and say there's a New Yorker cartoon <laughs> from around the year 2000, which I really treasured where – but which uh, I guess you were pretty – you were too young at that time to uh, really Maybe. fully appreciate this joke. But but you may you may know enough about how the world was to, to get – which is these people are sitting down to a – party and the person says, well, does anybody have any topics of conversation to raise or should I just should we just assume we'll all be talking about the Atkins diet? Because there was this period where the Atkins diet, you know, this like low carb diet, it was just literally you just mm-hmm. couldn't talk in in the circles of the kind of people who would read The New Yorker without this being a priority study. And of course, today, uh, you could make that same joke, but with artificial intelligence and the, the future of work and, and related topics. Do you have any right. thoughts on where we might be heading on them, I mean, you're out in the place where if AI is going to get invented, it'll probably get invented within five miles of where you're sitting. Um, <laughs> you know, much as much as maybe much as my, much as maybe my buddies, that, yeah, exactly. Maybe in your building, yeah, much yeah. as much as my friends here at Harvard and down the road at MIT might uh, might say no, it's going to be on on this side. Uh, so you know, we'll, we'll see. The battle the battle rages on. But um, uh, any thoughts, any scuttlebutt you're hearing as to as to hot new things that are happening in this area? Because I just think it's so inherently interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want the real dirty truth, it's already it's already happened. Really? All right. Uh, yeah. no, no, we no, won't no, tell no. anybody. We'll 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 cut off this part of the podcast so the rest of the world doesn't know. But just between you and me, what's happening? <laughs> yeah, geez. I mean, on the nature of AI, future of work. I guess I'm trying to get some focus here. Um, I I don't know. I I, I can't really say to be to be totally honest. So, for example, my my only background with this or main background with it, at least, is in the world of algorithmic composition. Mm-hmm. Um, right, so that's kind of the application of AI or AI principles to the generation of music. Um, mm-hmm. And I think if I came away with any overall conclusion about at least, uh, and I think maybe there's a distinction to be made in my limited understanding of this between like maybe like a general artificial intelligence and, and more artificial yeah. intelligence as like a tool. Yes. Clearly, um, clearly least, we keep redefining it where it's like, <laughs> it'll be artificial intelligence if they can beat us at chess. Oh, they beat us at chess. That's not artificial intelligence. Yeah. That's just mechanical nonsense, you know? And then we have the Turing test and it's like, I don't know where we are on a computer Turing test, but my guess is they're probably pretty darn mm-hmm. good at keep maintaining a conversation that seems human. And we're like, Oh, that's not real artificial intelligence. So yeah. And, and obviously at some point, maybe the magic is actually consciousness, right? And who the hell knows what that really is? But mm-hmm. that so maybe that you know we can think of that as the the, the highest bar. And so right, right. Uh, so that's that's definitely so, one element. Go on, go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my when I really got into it, I, I came across this um, fellow David Cope. He's at UC Santa Cruz. 
Okay. And um, he sort of one of the earlier adopters or one early believers even in this kind of a thing and uh, kind of built his own homebrew AI that he would feed in Mozart and would spit out Mozart. He would feed in Bach preludes and would spit out Bach preludes. This and is exactly of- what I wanted to ask you about, the Bach guy, right? And right. And, and he's and now the computer writes concertos that people like as much or better than actual Bach concertos, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and he even he would even take massive audiences of different kinds of people, right? Like he would have a public showing and afterwards he would, or throughout it, he would have people sort of write down which they thought was um, sort of Emmy, EMI is experiments in musical intelligence uh, mm-hmm. composed versus like actual Bach. Yeah. And um, the general audiences could not tell right. the difference. And even then the sort of uh, the pros, when you would invite composers, conductors, professional musicians um, to listen, um, they only, they didn't have a hundred percent degree of accuracy, a bit more yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, between that and looking at like project Magenta at Google, which is, is certainly a much more powerful um, sort of way of approaching this, like they, they had a Google Doodle, which was a kind of like uh, the counterpoint composer, right? Where you could write down any one melody and it would generate like a four part chorale in the sort of like mm-hmm. rock counterpoint style around that. And um, I think in all these cases, each of these tools and even to my own projects, I, I see them that they're in, a, in and of themselves a form of, of expression, a form of, of kind of an artistic tool, right? Like in, in, in as much as like a piano or a violin might be. And so I think that, that that's kind of like a fun thing to think about, like that yeah. um, working in the field of artificial intelligence and building out these tools is, is in and of itself a kind of kind of a form of creative expression. Um, working in the field of sciences is a lot, incorporates a lot of creativity. And, um, and I think that on the topic of like telling the difference between Bach or not, I think that there's, there's kind of a, a deeper truth to just the fact that one was composed in a real lived moment by a real person. Um, and that it's, it's not, and that's kind of a different thing than, than all of us hearing it played for the 10 millionth time. Like mm-hmm. me doing the sort of active improvisation or composition or writing something down is kind of a, something a little more whole than, <laughs> or I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say. It's a real thing. And like, creating some AI that, that seeks to generate similar Byron compositions or similar Byron sentences even, mm-hmm. um, is not, is not Byron, you know, even if you can't mm-hmm. tell the difference. It's, it's still, well, so it, I mean, of, that's right. There, there's, there's, there's these, there's the question of, okay, at what point, so it seems pretty clear from, uh, from Cope's work that, that we, the, the, uh, maybe we're already there in terms of the ability to, uh, replicate, um, to, to, to make music that is, hard for for people to distinguish uh from from the very best human produced music admitting that we are not um like bach was the first guy to do bach right so that's obviously Mm -hmm. very different from saying oh i'm going to invent a new musical form that people like as much as they like bach right so so that's the first thing is is clearly we haven't matched bach's achievement because we got to cheat and see the answers to the test by listening to all bach's Mm -hmm. music right okay so that's so so for sure we're not there yet. So it's, but it, it certainly makes one think that we might not be that far from somebody who can, you know, uh, make, make something new, you know, from a computer program that can make something new that's as inspiring to people as Bach. And then the question is, well, if they can, um, does that, uh, does it still not really matter? Cause it's still, you know, kind of 
created by a machine and not by from somebody's real mind. In other words, I guess the way to say it is this. If it can mm. make you and me feel emotions as powerful as we feel from listening to our favorite music, uh, does it matter whether it was produced um, by, by a machine that itself did not feel any emotions? And mm -hmm. – um, you know, I don't know the answer to that. But let me just say I this. Would, some of the yeah. most some of the music that affects me the most emotionally was probably created by some guy who was like, heh, 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 I bet I can get the audience to totally feel strong emotions if I do the song this way. You know what I'm saying? Most right. of the music yeah. I love the most, you know, whether it's the blues or rock and roll or, or other kinds of things, probably was produced by people who were in fact feeling the stirrings of strong emotions themselves. But some of it was probably created for purely commercial reasons by clever songwriters just trying to <laughs> trying to, you know, hit my funny bone. And and the computer may not be as big a step from that second thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I feel like it's a it's a mom's cooking kind of situation, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I I shouldn't say this too loudly, yeah. and, and I sure hope my mom never hears me say this. But yeah. like, you know, there was a time when her cooking was just not that great, and mm. I loved it anyway, though, because it was sure. what I had every day. It was made right. with love. It's what she made, and, and that kind of familiarity. And the association creates such a strong bond that like anytime I go home, like despite the fact that her cooking sort of developed so much and she's like teaching classes now and doing all this and that and the other, like I still long for those like old recipes, those little simple mm -hmm. basics and, and things like that. Well, the, like, these are so, – so, you know, the philosopher Derek Parfit uh, was, was famous for coming up with these sort of clever, almost science fictional hypotheticals to get us to dig into questions like that. So he'd say, well, you know, suppose that uh, there's a meal – suppose your mom trains, uh, you know, her, you know, her long-lost sister who you've never met to cook exactly the way she cooks. And then you get the meal and you think your mom cooked it and you have the same response. So that's one case study. And then another case mm -hmm. would be, well, suppose – Right before you eat it, she says, oh, by the way, this was cooked by my sister who I trained. And then you say, oh, and then and then maybe three is, uh, actually, she programmed a computer uh, to cook exactly the way she cooks. <laughs> and uh, you either do or don't know exactly the robot uh, cooked from the Jetsons or whatever the robot made. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, so you have these different scenarios and you say, well, okay. what point um, does it knock out? And, and, you know, Parfit would do things like, you know, oh, what if – what if um, – your mom and her twin sister were in a car accident and one of them, the brain survives and the body dies and the other one, the body survives and the brain dies and they move the brain mm -hmm. into the body. Is it still your mom? You know, <laughs> and you know, these when are the, all, uh, when the, you know, yeah, hard stuff. When the Black Mirror uh, writers make an episode about this, you should uh, definitely – yeah. Yeah. Well, well, Derek, 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 Derek Parfit, Derek Parfit should get right. the credit. Who's who? Who developed it? And he 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 actually passed away recently. But right. uh, I highly recommend yeah. his uh, his book Reasons and Persons, where okay. he he really showed the way to thinking through uh, these kinds of, uh, of of deep issues. Mm -hmm. I have to look into that. I think that, so. This is maybe what I was trying to say about Bach earlier, but um, I I think the real beauty or the real sort of miracle here is not that I taste some food that is exactly as my mother made it, even if it wasn't my mother, it was a robot slaving mm -hmm. away on a, over a hot stove all day making this thing. But I think the real miracle is, is just sort of, is that our, our brains are these machines, these learning, absorbing sort of conscious machines that are, that are constantly growing and developing and developing these tastes. And, and the fact that I, I can taste some dish regardless of whoever made it. And it, and it makes me think of like, mother back at home it's kind of that like right. ratatouille like end scene whether that the critic is the 
trying the food and he, he flashes back to his childhood and it's just as his mom. Yes. Which, which, like, and, and presumably that, that scene is a, is a reference to, uh, you know, Marcel, uh, Proust's, um, uh, remembrance of things past, right. In which the guy eats mm-hmm. the, uh, Madeleine, uh, the little cookie and, uh, and essentially, um, and, and it, and it flashes him back. And of course, right. His, his mother or childhood down or whatever did not make the Madeleine, but, and yet it, it's close enough to the flavor that it brings him back. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we know that, you know, the, 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 the sense of smell and taste is like the oldest part of our brain and it's super powerful you know the way that we can uh, a smell uh you know can be remembered for you know decades in the future and, and have that impact and um and uh yeah soon computers will learn to copy that too <laughs> <laughs> i mean they, we're just gonna have a matrix kind of situation right plugged into yeah. the batteries and, well this is you well, know yeah. right and that's an interesting question too because you know what like the you know people are going to have an option of the life they have which is wonderful in some ways but has a lot of pain and, and difficulty oh. in it. Uh, right. and then alternatively spending substantial amounts of time you know David, plugged uh, into um, the experience right. machine as uh this might be parfait too i don't know which philosopher actually first developed this concept but where but uh, but it could easily be him or one of his students in which you, you know, you feel like you're James Bond and you're saving the world and you're, you know, uh, uh, you know, meeting beautiful Bond girls and all the other, all the other wonderful accoutrements of the James Bond life or, or you're, you know, you're Tom Brady winning the Super Bowl or whatever it is that, that your fantasy is. You plug into that and it feels completely real. And it's a deep question as to like, you know, I think most of us would be like, no, of course I wouldn't want to have that fake experience. I want to have a real life experience. But, um, you know, my guess is that over time, people are going to start to, as those fake experiences become more and more indistinguishable from reality, uh, people are going to jump right in. Oh, yeah. I'm already there. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're <laughs> already, yeah, yeah. The, uh, yeah. I spent too much time playing video games. Yeah. Well, so, all right. So, so, uh, I got three questions to wrap up with. So, and I'll tell you what all three of them mm-hmm. are, and then we'll go through them. The first one is to ask whether you know of anything that is currently available in terms of audio games or games for the blind or whatever that you want to recommend we look at. Okay. And then, and then obviously we all look forward to getting to play your games, which I'm sure will be 10 times better than what's out there now. But, but until, <laughs> until, since we don't have access to the 26.9, uh, I'd love to know if you know of anything that we, that, that, uh, me and our listeners should check out who, who love, uh, love, uh, love games and, and have been deprived. And then, uh, and then second, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you, as I do with all my guests for, for a, uh, a book recommendation or, uh, uh, or media or anything like that. And then finally, I'm going to ask you for your, your all time best story. So let's uh, start with video games, any, um, or sure. audio games or whatever, anything you want to recommend, especially, uh, something I can get in the app store or other relatively mm-hmm. accessible, uh, way or for the Nintendo switch, which my kids use. Yeah, yeah. So when I was, it's been a little while since I've really dug into it. So there may be tons of things out there now. But when I was really digging in, uh, there was this game called Papa Sangre. I think that was actually like the first one and a sequel. It's uh, it's a bit scary. I, I think it's a, it's a horror game. Um, and uh, so it's it's Sangre 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 like blood S A N G R E. Is yep, that the second yep. word? Yeah, okay, I see. Mm-hmm. So so is this like a reference to the Haitian zombie culture and so forth? It sounds like something that would come from mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, it's definitely got that kind of a feel and yeah. musically and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I remember being a bit too scared to play all my yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, uh It's very compelling in that sense. And this is um, not, but, it, but it's scary without pictures. It's all just scary sounds and stuff yep, like that. Yep. And, and is this a phone and, game or where do you play it? It is a phone game, yeah. So it's on any app store. I think the real caveat here is that um, whereas if you had a space like this or if you had a VR headset, um, the sounds would just be rotating with you. You do have to keep your head like still, right? 
okay. didn't really get into it just because the, the sounds aren't going to like adjust in space relative to like the direction of your head. Yeah. Um, but for like a phone game on the app store, it's great. All right. Um, I'm totally going to check it out. It's Papa Sangre. Moving that sounds up. interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Beautiful. So you got a book, uh, you got a book for us or, or, or <laughs> yeah. something you consume, a consumable? <laughs> something, something that took the place of uh, reading over the last uh, couple of weeks for me was actually, it was created by a novelist, uh, I believe an Estonian novelist, mm-hmm. this game called Disco Elysium. Okay. Um, sounds a bit wacky, um, but without giving too much away, you, you sort of, play this amnesiac person who wakes up in the middle of this crime scene. Uh, it's kind of a, a mystery game, sort of a whodunit sort of thing. But mm-hmm. the most interesting piece is that all of your, um, these different parts of your psyche and, and sort of who you are, everything from your, your sort of the electrochemistry of your nerves to the sort of like inland empire of your ability to sort of imagine the world sort of being full of life around you. Um, each has like different skill points and abilities and like depending on that, we'll sort of have conversations with you, the world, and each other. So your like sense of drama might say like this person's like totally BSing you, but um, logic could chimes in and says like they have no reason to like you're overreacting. Hmm. Um, and so it's really interesting because not only does it really create this introspective character um, sort of in the game, but I think with within a lot of the choices you make, it really makes you question why you're choosing to say certain things. So if you always try to play like the middle ground, the safe road, like people will actually call you out for it, you know, and, and, and sort of bully you almost um, for not being a little more adventurous. This is a multiplayer game. You're, you're participating with other people who are involved online. Uh, No, no, it's a single player game. It's It's just a a regular. Okay. So when you say people will call you out, you mean people within the fake people within the video game will call you out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. see. Interesting. uh, In that sense, it's very well written. mm -hmm. um, Very compelling. The, uh, that sounds very cool. The, uh, say the game, Elysium, something, say it again. Disco Elysium. Oh, Disco Elysium, yeah. The, yeah, uh, Disco. Well, the best book I've read lately is, uh, was recommended to me by my sister-in-law. It's called Say Nothing by Patrick Redden Keefe. And it's um, basically a, um, it's sort of the story of uh, the troubles in Northern Ireland, and uh, which when I was growing up was a really hot topic. And then eventually, you know, peace came and everything, but the, the situation is certainly not not fully resolved, and uh, it's really quite incredible to read about because uh, you you just kind of have these very like normal people involved in this thing where people are are like you know killing their neighbors and stuff like that, and and you think yeah. like why are they doing this and and how can this be happening and and uh, and I guess what I'd say is Americans are fairly familiar with hearing those stories from places they view as very alien, places in other parts of the world that they view as much more alien. But to have it be happening, you know, in Ireland, which is, you know, about as close to North America as any place in the world can be and mm-hmm. and that ever and and culturally, you know, feels very similar and most people know lots of people with Irish heritage or even people from Ireland. And, and so then you, you read this and, and, uh, and, and all the stuff that went on. Uh, and, uh, it really, uh, it's really just, uh, an extraordinary story and just, you know, fascinating. There's some really cool kind of historical detective work that takes place to figure out what, which, you know, 
I like wide ranging conversations, and this may be the record for the podcast in terms of the ground we've covered, whether it's AI, video games, startup companies, and uh, and you know uh, that's my awesome. This is exactly what I want this podcast to be. So I want to thank you uh, for taking the time, (laughs) and um, and uh, really really enjoyed this so much. And um, uh, let's let's keep in touch because I think um, you know just in terms of startup world, we probably have lots to talk about if if nothing else. Plus, I totally want to play your uh, your Star Wars game <laughs> yeah if you ever run the uh, silicon valley definitely let me know cool awesome <laughs> thanks so much byron yep thank you cheers you've been listening to the dangerous vision podcast a production of the massachusetts association for the blind and visually impaired i'm david brown